Well, the adventure continues. We've had a good time this month, uh, this Advent season, and we've been looking at different characters each Sunday. And so we continue that this morning. Three weeks ago, we took a look at the Christmas story from the perspective of the prophets. God telling us through the prophets that the Messiah is coming. A couple of weeks ago, the angels, they announced with joy of Christ's arrival. And last week, the shepherds. They hear the message of the angels and they go and see for themselves the new Messiah who's been born. And today, we're gonna take a look and we'll see what we can learn from the, the, from the Magi. It's those mysterious men from the East. When I mentioned the Mona Lisa, the scream, and the impression sunrise, what comes to mind? If you thought, they're all famous paintings, you're right. Actually, they have a couple other things in common as well. First of all, they are tremendously valuable. And the second thing is that they were all at some point stolen. The Mona Lisa was painted by Leonardo da Vinci in the 16th century. It is considered an archetypal masterpiece of the Italian Renaissance. I almost said restaurant. (laughs) It has been described as the best known, most visited, the most written about, the most sung about, the most parodied work of art in the world. In 1911, a museum worker walked out of the Louvre with, a, with the Mona Lisa under a smock. Expressed that that person felt that it should have been in Italy rather than France. Two years later, the thief was caught trying to sell a painting. The Scream by Edvard Munch. He's a Norwegian expressionist and that painting was painted in 1893. The scream is second only to the Mona Lisa as the most iconic figure in in history of the art world in Western art. In 2004, the scream was ripped off a museum wall by armed robbers. Fortunately, it was recovered and restored. Impression Sunrise. This is a painting by Claude Monet. It was first shown what would become known as the exhibition of the Impressionists. The painting was credited with inspiring the name of the Impressionist movement. In 1985, armed robbers stormed the Marmottan Museum in Paris and took the painting. It was recovered later, five years later, by French police. As we are closing in on Christmas, I want to remind you of what an amazing and precious treasure we have in the first Christmas. As our planning and preparation and commitments reach a fevered pitch in these last few days before the holiday, I don't want the real treasure of of, uh, Christmas to be stolen out from under you. The point of Christmas, after all, is that God came to dwell with us so that we could dwell with him forever. As uh, John reminds us in the first chapter of his gospel, the word was God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. 
When you think of the enormity of God and the complexity of his creation and the majesty of his glory, this effort for our salvation is beyond comprehension. Why would God go to such lengths to restore us to himself? The answer is found in his nature. It is found in one word that God uses to describe himself in 1 John 4, 8. God is love. So with Christmas nearly upon us, I wanted to help us to preserve and to protect the real treasure and the meaning of the holiday by looking at the account of the Magi. In the short account of Matthew chapter two, centered on the Magi's worship, we see three very different responses to this wonderful event. We see King Herod, the teachers of the law, and the Magi. And they all take a different approach to the events of Jesus' birth. The meaning and power of the event are lost and stolen for Herod and the Pharisees. But the Magi, their approach to worship is a proper response in what God did that night. When we consider the night was the culmination, that night was the culmination of hundreds, even thousands of years of prophecy. When we consider that God went to such great lengths for you and I, when we remember that Jesus did indeed save us from our sins, what else can we do but worship? If we follow the Magi's example, then we will find that the power, the wonder, and the meaning of the holiday will not be wasted on us and will not be stolen from us. If you heard the account of the Magi or the wise men many times, the image in your mind may not line up with the Bible. Before we begin looking at these different responses, let's get the actual picture that the Bible paints. If you have your Bible with you, please open it to Matthew chapter two. It may sound familiar because Evan read it this morning. We're gonna do it again. So, um, but before we do, let's pray. Lord, we've gathered here in this place to be with you, to hear from you, and Holy Spirit, I would ask that you would open our hearts and minds of each one of us here so that we can know you. I pray that you would speak to each of us, each one of us, in a way that we need to hear from you today. May we be quiet and be still before you in this hectic and busy time and know that you are God. Amen. So, Matthew chapter two. The print is small, so the glasses come out. <laughs> All right. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. I'm reading from the NIV, by the way. He was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. 
when he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked him where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star had been where it rose, excuse me, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw, excuse me, read this properly. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and they presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their, to their own country by another route. The word of the Lord. So despite what many of us sing every year, you'll notice that the Magi were not kings. And the Bible does not say how many of them there were. In the Expositor's Bible Commentary, it tells us in later centuries, down to the New Testament times, the term magi, it loosely covered a wide variety of men interested in dreams, astrology, magic, and books thought to contain mysterious references to the future. So instead of kings, more likely there were scholars and astrologers who had some working some working knowledge of and belief in the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. The tradition that there were three of them probably comes from the fact that there were three gifts given to Jesus. But it's possible that the gift came from a number of magi. We don't know where they came from except that it was from the east. Perhaps it was the prophet and Daniel that was involved. Do you remember the story of the handwriting on the wall in the book of Daniel? King Belshazzar, excuse me, King Belshazzar called for someone to interpret the meaning of the dreams on the, of the writing on the wall. So let's pick up at Daniel chapter five, verse 10. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and the nobles, came into the banquet hall. O king, live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. And in the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, I say, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. This man, Daniel, 
whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, for he will tell you what the writing means. It's amazing to see that throughout the entire Old Testament, there is an anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. The first great promise in Genesis 3.15, it contains the germ of all the prophecies recorded in the Old Testament regarding the coming of the Messiah and the great work that he was to accomplish on earth. So in that Genesis 3.15 passage, it's called the Proto-Evangel. It's that passage where it says that, uh, that uh, Satan will, cru- will bruise Jesus' heel, but, but he will crush Satan's head. So that's that germ of the prophecy, the promise of the Messiah. The prophecies become more definite and they can become more fuller as the, uh, the ages roll on. But it was not until the time of Daniel in the sixth century BC that the term Messiah was used as the actual title of the king who would come in the future. In Daniel chapter nine, we find this. Also in chap- Daniel chapter nine, we, f- we see that that's where also where God revealed to the prophet Daniel the timing of the coming of the Messiah. So, it makes sense that Daniel could have been the one that communicated what God had revealed to him to magicians, enchanters, astrologers, diviners, the magi, if you will, that he was in charge of. Some may have believed and passed this knowledge down to their successors until the time when God called, guiding them with a star to where the Messiah was born. We don't know what that star was. Some suggest it could have been a sign in the heavens, like the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn that happened near 7 BC. Some think it was a comet or a supernova. And others believe it was purely a supernatural event, like the pillar of fire or the cloud that led the Israelites through the desert in the Exodus. The most amazing thing about the Magi is that in this short account in Matthew, these non-Jewish foreigners with questionable religious practices who were gazing at the stars were the only ones who responded appropriately to Jesus' birth. They expended significant effort and resource to seek Jesus. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. When they bowed down, they worshiped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts. So it serves as a stark reminder for those of us who are in the church and consider ourselves to be followers of Jesus. Are we like the Magi, focusing on our worship, adoration, and gifts for the king? Or are we so familiar with the story that our wonder has been lost or stolen? While we might expect that those outside the faith may miss the real meaning of Christmas, will we make certain that our hearts stay focused on what this holiday really means? A little later, we'll dig deeper into the Magi's response. But before we do, let's consider another response that we've seen in Matthew 2. After encountering the Magi, Herod called the chief priests and the teachers of the law 
They called them together and asked them where the Messiah was to be born. They shared the answer by quoting the prophet Micah, who pointed to Bethlehem about 700 years before Jesus was born there. This is really interesting. The teachers of the law and the priests have just heard that the Messiah has been born. The scriptures, the one who, excuse me, they have just heard that the Messiah has been born. In response, the ones who have dedicated their lives to God in the scriptures, the ones who make their living from teaching about God's law and his prophecies, they are the ones who do nothing. They don't investigate, they don't search him out. They just say, he's probably over that way somewhere. Imagine that you're the president of the Justin Bieber fan club in our city. I know, this is too painful to consider, but bear with me. Imagine that Justin has just sent you an email and that he's going to do a free concert in Stanwood. And he wants, you to, he wants to know where to stay. As his biggest fan in the world, you respond with an email and tell him, try the Holiday Inn. And then you get back to work and you just forget the rest, nothing. We all know that the real president, if the real president of the Justin Bieber fan club had received that email, she would be there. She would have hundreds of screaming friends with her. There's going to be crying, shaking, and fainting. There won't be any ignoring. There will not be any business as usual. The priests and the teachers of the law are waiting and teaching about the Messiah. When the news comes that he's arrived, they give Herod the biblical answer, head on over to Bethlehem, but they don't do anything else about it. From what I can gather about the Pharisees, I think they were mostly excited about the fact that they were able to search, study, and give the correct answer. But it seems to me that they really didn't care about the Messiah himself, the one they knew so much about. They were more interested in what they knew about the Messiah than about the opportunity they had to come to know the Messiah. So just from our talk today, you know more about the Magi than the vast majority of the population. But don't let your knowledge and familiarity with the events of Christmas steal away from the wonder of it. It is important to learn about God. It's essential to study his word and his commands. But don't make the mistake the teachers and the priests made where they put knowing about God above knowing God. Jesus didn't say, I know my sheep and my sheep know about me. He said, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. God reveals himself through his word, but the whole point in studying scripture is to draw close to him in order to know him more and to become more like him in his love. As the Bible says, knowledge puffs up while love builds up. God showed up on Christmas so we can know him and have a relationship with him. So don't let our focus on new knowledge steal the treasure of Christmas from your heart.
Let's look at another response from the first Christmas. We learned that when King Herod heard that the Magi had come to worship the one who had been born king of the Jews, he was disturbed. Herod was paranoid and he was power hungry. History tells us that he killed his own two of his sons because he felt threatened by their power. True to form, Herod presented what, <coughs> excuse me, true to form, Herod pretended that he wanted to worship Jesus. But we see later in this chapter that his plan was really to try and kill the Messiah. Herod's response to Christmas is an extreme example of self-preservation and fighting for the status quo, the exact opposite of the worship of the Magi. Herod treats the news of Christmas in the same way he responds to any of his threat, any threats to his power or of him being in control. He tries to eliminate it. Our culture also tries to attempt to take Jesus out of the picture at Christmas. It manipulates us to focus on buying things and spending money. Did you notice this year right after Halloween that the stores became flooded with decorations and promotions. But where is Jesus in all of that? We need to guard against a Herod slash modern culture response to remove the Messiah, taking away from the glory of Jesus in this season. We need to evaluate how we spend our time, our traditions and our celebrations. Do they point to Jesus? Do they make him the focal point or do they pull us away and distract us away from God? I love Christmas traditions. Let's be intentional to create opportunities to make Jesus the focus of our life, our traditions, and our celebrations. Herod was so caught up in the world, so concerned with keeping control of his life and his position that he missed the greatest blessing in history. So as we consider our preparation for, for Christmas, let's consider the example of the Magi. When they saw the child with his mother, they bowed down and worshiped him. We know nothing else about the Magi, but what we do know in light of what God had done, their response is the only one that makes sense. If we want to guard the meaning and the wonder of Christmas, I suggest that we start with worship. There is nothing that centers our hearts and our minds on what really matters like worship. The English word worship comes from an old English word, worth-ship. It's a word that denotes the worthiness of the one receiving a special honor or devotion. Worship includes declaring admiring and meditating on the attributes of someone of great value to you. Let's dive even a little bit deeper into the meaning of Christmas. In Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Jesus. We celebrate the incarnation. The incarnation is a theological term for the coming of God's son. The coming of God himself into the world as a human being. This is God reaching out to us. In Colossians 1, and 23, scripture says, but now 
He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. How did he get a physical body? That's the Christmas story. He was born. Jesus participated fully in all that it means to live a human life. But if Jesus were only a man, no matter how great, there would be no significance in drawing attention to his bodily existence. The marvelous thing is that in Jesus, God himself began to live a fully human life. As the Apostle Paul declared, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The capacity of Jesus to reveal God to us and bring salvation depends upon him being fully God and fully man at the same time. This is difficult to understand how Jesus can be fully God and fully man. But the Bible gives clear indication of how this works out in practice. In Exodus 33:20, scripture tells us no person may see God and live. In 1 Timothy 6, 16, it says, he dwells in unapproachable light. Can we therefore only know him from a distance? No. God has come near in the person of Jesus. He has taken on a form in which he can be seen, experienced, and understood by us human beings. Jesus reveals God perfectly to us since in his human life, he is the image of God, exhibiting full likeness with the Father. Jesus' Godhood in his manhood is the key to our intimate knowledge of God. This does not mean, however, that Jesus' humanity is only a display case for his divinity. Jesus lived out his human life by experiencing all of the pressures the temptations and the limitations that we experience. Scripture tells us in Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Jesus can truly empathize with all that we go through in life. That's why Jesus' life is really the supreme human success story. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Jesus was also a pioneer. He showed in practical terms the full meaning and the possibility of a human life lived in obedience to God. In this respect, Jesus was a kind of second Adam, marking a new beginning for the human race. Jesus would have performed a great work if he had done no more than set a perfect example. But in his full humanity is also the basis on which it is possible for him to take upon himself the punishment for our sins in dying for us. The Bible makes clear of this when when it speaks of one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all. When he ascended to his father after his 
resurrection, the joining together of deity and humanity that marks his incarnation, did not come to an end with the ascension. Jesus took his resurrected body with him back to heaven. In heaven now, he is our divine Lord, our human leader, and the great high priest who serves as a mediator between God and us. He is interceding for each of us right now before the Father. He is also preparing a place for us. All that Jesus has done and all that he will do is a gift for you, the greatest gift you will ever receive. Have you opened that gift? How can we uh, not be filled with adoration or worship knowing all this? We don't worship God because he is in need of it. We worship God because we are in need of it. Giving him praise he is due reminds us of who he really is. Our worship fuels and feeds our gratitude. Our worship brings us back to the grandeur, the grace, and the greatness of God. When we worship, we experience a deeper connection with God and fall deeper in love with him. We can plainly see that the teachers of the law should have known better. They knew about God, but they did not seek to know him personally. This takes time. This takes effort. We can easily tell that Herod chose the wrong thing. How ironic that as Herod tried to keep control of his life, he chose the lesser thing. His own power could never match the power of God. His own place and position could never compare with the presence of God. The Magi show us the way to make the most out of Christmas, indeed the most out of our lives. Seek to know God, and as you do, the natural result will be to worship him. You will have joy. Your life will have hope and meaning. The Magi worshiped him through their gifts and offerings. The shepherds worshiped through proclaiming the good news. The angels worshiped in song, and Mary worshiped by pondering all the amazing events in her heart. May we do so also. The Magi worshiped the king not because they were supposed to or he required it, but because their hearts demanded it of them. They encountered the word who became flesh, God with us, Emmanuel, and they were never the same again. All the more as this Christmas uh, time nears, let's seek God and give him the worship and the praise he rightly deserves. May you, like the wise men, seek him and find him. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, I pray that each one here today like the wise men would seek you. You have reached out to us and done so much so that we can have a relationship with you. I pray for a desire and a commitment in each one of us to pursue a relationship with you, to expend significant effort to seek you, Jesus, to read the Bible, your word to us, to talk to you in prayer, to gather together regularly in church as your people and worship you. Be present in our Christmas, Lord. 
be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Go and have a blessed Christmas.